Hey, everybody. You're listening to the Theology and Reality podcast, and we have got another special edition of the Watch and Wonder series. Today, we're going to be discussing one of Terrence Malick's greatest films, The Tree of Life. Joining me today are Taylor O'Neill and Urban Hannon. We had a great conversation. We did our very best to try and keep it as short as possible, as I'm sure you'll notice. We were not too successful, uh, but nevertheless, I hope you enjoy it. It was a great conversation. So without further ado, let's jump right in. I think I, I'm probably very bad at this. I think every time Taylor and I've done it, we just like, <laughs> I just record from the beginning and just clip it off, whatever personal stuff at the beginning and it just starts. So great. yeah, maybe I'm bad at this, but a lot of the time... I will have not seen most movies that people will talk about and be like, Oh, I like this a lot. And I think it was back in Florida where Taylor, you had mentioned seeing this and it sort of been on my mind. Oh, I should eventually watch this because I've heard very opposite things about it over the years. <laughs> Either so people really love it or people find it extremely bizarre. And so it's like, well, that's this is something I'm going to get around to watching one day and we'll see. So when, when I was like, oh, we should do surely this. It's not a situation it. of surely it's not a situation of either people love it or they find it bizarre because anyone who loves it has to also acknowledge this is a bizarre film. We're talking yeah. about a bizarre movie today. <laughs> yeah, that's why people you either like it because it's bizarre, right? Or you just don't like yeah, bizarre movies. And I love bizarre movies. So, of course, you know, I'm going to love this movie. Yep. I don't know if I do as a general rule, but I'm definitely all in this time. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. So that's that's a good point. That's I do like it because of how odd it is. But maybe I guess the difference is whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for you. Because I think when I was... I was doing a little research after I watched it the first time in some theaters, they, they put up like big posters warning people not to leave. And that like, they hadn't switched like the film reels and things because people would be like, well, I, just, I was watching Brad Pitt and then all of a sudden dinosaurs. I don't understand. So, yeah, they were having big problems. I think with people walking out, demanding their money back. So I think, folks showing mm -hmm. up for the Brad Pitt of it all for the Jessica Chastain kind of breakout for Sean Penn, um, who is a star of this movie question mark. I'm sure we'll talk about it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, people just having no back, uh, background with Malik experience of this sort of surrealist thing that he does and walking into this and just being completely overwhelmed, turned off, confused, and wanting their $12 back or whatever movies cost in 2011. Yeah, th this happened to me. I actually saw it in <laughs> the theater with um, with my wife. I don't know if we, we were either engaged or just had newly gotten married. I don't know when it came out. but um, May 2011, I think. Okay, so it was right before we got married. Any anyways, uh, we, I think, were the only people in that particular... Um, room or theater, whatever that that screen. There was us and one like old couple, and um, I remember the trailers for this film on television. They cut it to make it look like it was going to be, you know, not a Terrence Malick movie. <laughs> you know, where it was going to be 
kind of a regular <laughs> family drama with Brad Pitt and they, they lose their son. And then these old folks, you know, showed up. And a few times throughout the beginning, 15 minutes or so, the wife would lean over to the husband and go, what is this? What is this? And then it got to the creation scene and maybe about 40 seconds into that, she just goes, oh, my goodness. And they both got up and walked out. Yeah. So anyways, anecdotally, yeah, that was my experience with this film as well, is that, that that's how many people were leaving that, yeah, I saw it firsthand. I I had an experience with this movie the first time I saw it that that reminded me of, though this is not a case of someone storming out. But I was actually invited to a screener of this movie. I think it's the only time in my life I've ever been invited to a screener. But I was working for the Archdiocese of New York when this came out, doing young adult outreach. And they were really trying to get, I think in New York and L.A. and probably other places, trying to get the Catholic scene or the Christian scene like really into this. So because I managed a mailing list with thousands of young Catholics on it, they invited me and my boss to come see this movie. So my boss had just had surgery earlier that day. Some woman crashed into him on a bike uh, in the Hudson River Park. And so he had surgery on his hand earlier that day. So he's in like recovery mode from surgery, gets to this movie is like, okay, this is okay. I'm still kind of woozy and everything, but I'm sure a movie will be fine. (laughs) (laughs) And somewhere between the Big Bang and the dinosaurs, he wandered out into the lobby and said he was going to the bathroom. I, as a poor employee, did not go with him. Uh, and he ended up going to the bathroom, getting ill, getting, uh, on the verge of passing out, I think. And then thankfully his girlfriend had been running late and she showed up and took him home. But yeah, it uh, is a movie that has all sorts of effects on people. <laughs> it's one, I don't know if you've had this experience, but it's one that this week, as I tried to rewatch it, I have to say, so I absolutely love this movie. This is a five-star movie for me. I watched it this week on a laptop in prep for this podcast. And I'd seen it three times before this in a theater. So once in New York, like I said, then once I was visiting Notre Dame one summer and their theology faculty would rent out, I guess it was in a building uh, on campus, there was a movie theater and the theology faculty would rent it out to show different things. And they were doing a showing of this and the friends I was staying with had never seen it. So I took them along and had a great time. And then uh, a few years ago, when I was in a monastery, we were spending, all the seminarians were spending a couple of weeks, or sorry, not that long, a couple of days, uh, down at the home of a benefactor of ours, and he had a kind of movie theater in his house. And so I set it up for a bunch of my seminarian brothers to watch, but again, in like a very surround sound, all immersive theater seating kind of experience. And all three of those times, it just absolutely blew me away. And trying to watch it on a laptop this week, it was more like a record. Uh, it's sort of like when someone records a Broadway show and you're watching a video of a Broadway show, you're like, okay, this hmm. is sort of a record of the fact that this happened, but I'm not actually seeing it right now. And trying to watch yeah. this on a computer really felt like a completely different experience. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know for you guys, if you've had the experience of trying to see it both ways, but Malik for me, maybe more than any other director, just, demands the kind of all immersive um, kind of atmosphere for these films. Mm -hmm. I can see how that would be true. Not having, I, so I haven't seen it in theaters. I mean, to be, to be honest, I, I don't think I've been, I don't think I've seen a movie in a movie theater in like a decade, to be honest. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, so I, I, I have only experienced this, but I, I did the one thing I did notice, which I think probably, probably simply just confirms what you're saying is there was, there was a difference between trying to watch this at home with just with sort of normal speakers and listening to it with headphones on. Cause like listening to it with headphones on with the volume up was almost immediately a different experience. Cause I watched it more than once. And so I think, okay, like there's the more immersive this is. And I think that you're right with Malik's almost impressionistic kind of style. I can imagine it works far better in that kind of fully immersive sense in which in the theater where you kind of fade away as a, as a subject and just sort of <laughs> dive into what you're watching. Yeah. I, I watched it on my laptop this uh, last night and I think the, I mean, this sort of, I guess, segues into the, into the film itself, but um, you have the quote from Job at the beginning, you know, uh, where were you when I was creating and mm-hmm. that Job, yeah. Job 38, four and seven says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Yeah, so the the kind of reproachful smallness that you're supposed to feel that you, you know, that Job ought to have felt when he was told that. I feel like you get that when you're watching this on the big screen, when you're watching on your mm-hmm. laptop. You, you still feel like you're sort of lording over the creation scene. Because it, <laughs> yeah. So, uh-huh. yeah, it doesn't work quite as well. Yeah, that's a great point. There's even a note at the beginning of it when you watch it at home, uh, when I watched it on my computer last night, saying this movie yeah. is meant to be enjoyed with the volume loud. Turn the volume <laughs> up, whatever. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Joshua, by the way, it, it blows my mind a little bit that the host of a movie podcast has not been to theaters in 10 years. You've <laughs> got to get back out there, man. The movie theaters need you. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that it's... I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that I keep having children. Just it's like they keep appearing well. <laughs> every two years and they're just like, they're like, they're really needy. Um, this is a fantastic so, response. No. Okay. Actually that leads me, which to is a great reaction of, you know, having watched, you know, okay, yeah, right. sorry. <laughs> okay. So both of you are coming to this as fathers. Um, and I am not, yeah. I'm coming to this as a celibate man. I, I was curious watching this last night for you. Do you experience this movie as the son of a father or as the father of a son or of sons? Taylor, you can go first. Um, Yeah, that's a really excellent question. Um, I found myself experiencing it more as a dad. So I was definitely had moments of identifying with, uh, I think Jack is the name of the, the older son, Sean Penn's character. Um, but the scenes where Jack is starting to disobey his parents and things like that, I just kept thinking about it. Yeah. Through the lens of the, 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 the father, especially what about you? Yeah. I don't think, no, I, I a hundred percent agree. I don't think, it it has been an interesting experience the last, I mean, I guess it's been a while now, but I remember first having children, the first one or two, you're still in that kind of transition phase 
right? Mm-hmm. But there's been the multi- I can't think of any off the top of my head at the moment, but there's been multiple times where I rewatched something and thought, oh, like I remember rewatching this from a totally different perspective. And so watching this, I, yeah, 100% identified with the father. And hmm. it's one of the few things I can remember, maybe ever, but at least recently, where I finished the, I finished the movie and thought, like, I have to be a better dad because <laughs> it was because I, I think I think the question about the character of the dad, the father, sorry. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Is an interesting question, but re- re- Don't call regardless me of call what me your father. answer is for that, <laughs> yeah. regardless of what your answer to that question would be. I think that there's like, as a dad, you watch it. And I think in, at least for me, you think like, okay, like I, I can identify with so many moments of selfishness, right? Cause you just, you, you, you know, your own sinfulness, you know, your own selfishness, like that you have to constantly subjugate and attempt to conquer like through virtue and you watch it. It it just reminded me like, okay, like patience, something as simple as patience, you know, that, that he clearly has an issue with. So I finished it and watched it. Like, okay, I've got, I've got to do everything that I can, right. To be, to be better. Right. Cause you, you watch it. You think of like, I've, I've seen, you know, you see, like you see your children react when, when you don't react well, you see how they react. And this film did such a good job and the, whoever the child actors are, right. Did such a good job with their, their reactions for things. It was just completely true to life. Yeah, some of those yeah, interactions kind of wonder, though, the- with the way these things are edited and shot, like how much of this is that these kids are great actors and how much of this is that it's all kind of naturalistic and he could have shot this a thousand times and he only picks like 2% of every scene to actually show you anywhere. Like Malik is so bizarre in how much of everything he shoots ends up on the cutting room floor and going in without really a super clear idea of where the thing is ending up and just playing with it for literally years afterward. Um, but with the kid actors in particular, I was reading that they auditioned over 10,000 Texas school children for these parts. Uh, and that 95% of the people who appear in this movie are not actors. They had no prior acting experience. So aside from your kind of top build, mm. whatever, sure. four or five people, it's all, uh, all just folks from the neighborhood. Yeah, I will say, um, yeah, I thought I was blown away by the children. I think you're, you're right. Urban. He, he probably just filmed these kids kind of playing for so long that they became natural in front of the camera. And then he had essentially, you know, documentary type reality footage, but with, uh, cinematic quality. But uh, yeah, I, I can't agree more about the, <clears throat> One of my big takeaways from watching the movie this time, as opposed to previous times, was, uh, yeah, just, um, yeah, wanting to be a better father, precisely because Brad Pitt's character is, he's not this, like, he's not absolutely thoroughly uh, horrible as a father. There's a lot of moments of levity where he's playing with his kids. He's showing them attention. But then there's these moments where he's, I mean, pretty overbearing, pretty, you know, borderline emotionally abusive. I mean, I think we would say today, definitely emotionally abusive, but he's not just like portrayed abusive on one occasion, right? Exactly. Right. Right. But he's not just portrayed as a monster. Right. And so 
you, yeah, it just rings more true to life. And then, uh, um, I was looking up afterward about this and I guess, um, Malik had three brothers and his youngest or the middle brother, just like in the film died when he was youngish under like mysterious circumstances, maybe he committed suicide and he was off like on a trip to Europe or something like that. Um, so clearly it seems to me that there's some, a lot of autobiographical elements to this film in particular. And, and that, that comes true. That comes through. I mean, most of the movie, it seems to me to be more or less memories of Sean Penn's character, right. That are sort of floating through his mind. And they ring so true that even when I was watching it, I was wondering, man, I, Malik must've been putting his own memories into this, this, this film. You know, it's interesting in that regard, Malik was so ahead of the curve on these directors doing these retrospective autobiographical films processing their childhood. Cause you look around this year, I mean, this is like the recurring theme this year and there's yeah. probably a variety of reasons for this. I mean, we're, we're stuck in a cycle of just um, recycling the past in all of our media right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of these directors sort of feel like the state of the industry is such that they may never get another movie made, at least not one with a kind of blank check. So they're trying to do, the passion project, the look back, whatever. But we've got Fablemans this year with Steven Spielberg. We've got Armageddon Time with James Gray. Uh, we've got Bardo on Netflix, which apparently is a disaster, but I haven't brought myself to watch it. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, to be honest, the genre is not a genre that I appreciate very much, especially since all of these guys are boomers. And so it's kind of the origin story of a generation that I already have a hard time relating to. Yeah. And then when I come into it, including in this movie, I actually don't really see much of my relationship with my dad in this movie, but I see a lot of what I understand or imagine or have heard my dad's relationship with my grandfather was like, it's very yeah, much those two generations, right? So sure. it's the Sean Penn character is this, yeah, quintessential um, kind of uh, man who had the overbearing father who didn't understand him. He rebelled and now is free and successful in this kind of worldly sense, looking out on the emptiness of his life, etc. Um, but I'll say just to shout out one more contemporary movie that I think would make a really, really interesting double feature with this. The only one of these movies this year that worked for me at all is a movie called After Sun. I don't know if y'all heard about this. It's been one of the kind of indie darlings no. of this past year, but it's by a brand new filmmaker named Charlotte Wells, who's a Scottish filmmaker who's young. I think she's still in her 20s, if not early 30s. So very much a millennial. And her dad had her really young. So her dad is like comfortably Gen X. Um, and so it's a very different version of this story that's much simpler and kind of much more intimate, but that I actually found, even though it's a father-daughter, which is not a relationship I have, um, I found much more interesting than the other things on offer right now for this. But Tree of Life, I think, is cool compared to these ones that were being handed this year, because Malik, even if he's doing something that reaches back into his own childhood. And it, this is sort of his version of uh, therapy is just putting it all on screen and processing it. He also has something so much more to say about this than just here is 
how my parents influenced me and how that made me a filmmaker and uh, where they were small minded or how Trump destroyed everything in the case of Armageddon time or whatever. <laughs> that here, his childhood is put in literally a cosmic perspective. Um, mm -hmm. We spend the vast majority of this film with the little boy uh, version of Jack, but with bookends of the Big Bang and the destruction of Earth in, uh, you know, um, cosmological firestorm, and then this kind of eschatological moment. So I think Malik just has so much more to say. Um, and so there's not this kind of trapped, narrow literalism, where in the case of Spielberg, I don't know, people have a lot of hot takes right now on Michelle Williams and Paul Dano and the roles of his parents. But the thing he seems to have gone for is just how literal can I be? How can I get someone to act exactly like my crazy mom acted? And I trust that Michelle Williams is doing a great job channeling that, but it's such a specific character that's just so hard to plug into. And I think that Malik was able to do something that was simultaneously so particular and the particular ends up mattering so much in this movie. But also, precisely through it mattering, you get something much more universal um, and kind of relatable in what he's doing. Yeah, I, I agree completely. It's not he whatever memories he's using are <clears throat> really just the vehicle to explore. They're, they're meant to lend, I think, some insight, uh, some credibility to this particular event, but this particular event, I mean, what the movie's about really is not this particular event, right? Of his childhood, the losing of his brother, et cetera. The, the, the movie is about, I think the way in which, um, you can process or, uh, uh, think about the place of suffering in, um, in life, in the, in the human condition. Yeah, that's definitely a question that I wanted to ask. If you thought there's a sense in which I was trying to, I was trying to think back over the movie and think something I, I typically attempt to try and maybe single out or, okay, well, like what, what happened to be, you know, not, not best scene, maybe, but like, like defining scenes. And it seems like what he does with this is it's really difficult to pick out particular scenes because it's almost like, really small little vignettes that just sort of bounce around. And so that was, that was kind of difficult. And so is that, is, is that what you find to be the principal theme of the movie? Cause that was another question I had. If you thought there was, Oh, there's this one theme. There's this one question that he's trying to answer, or if it's bigger and broader than that. Yeah. Urban, do you have thoughts about that? Um, yeah, I guess for me, the thing that Malik or at least late Malik does so well is imbue the smallest things with the kind of biggest significance. So while I think there's a sense in which, um, we all have this story, like any one of our lives could fit into this kind of framework. And what he's doing to illustrate the Job thing with Jack could also be done with any one of us because on Malik's view, which is the correct view, 
all of us are loved children of God, created, um, adopted sons of God for those who have the faith. And I do think this movie is definitely also about wrestling precisely with the faith. Um, but I don't think that Jack becomes um, just sort of a, you know, a kind of cardboard cutout um, that's just a symbol of all of this either. So I want to, I think, insist that it is really, really a story about individuals. Um, and so that while Malik is doing a kind of theodicy um, and taking this Job line, and then, of course, lots of other scripture echoing around throughout too, um, mm-hmm. either directly or with uh, young Jack's little prayers up to God, you know, saying things after the BB gun sequence, like, uh, what I want to do, I can't, I do what I hate all this kind of thing, which mm-hmm. obviously is very Pauline translated into, uh, the language of Waco, Texas circa 1955. Um, but yeah, I think that while Malik is up to all of that, he's also not making the mistake of just kind of allegorizing or giving an every man trope either. So it gets to be both an exploration of suffering and exploration of faith, a reflection on the kind of um, familial circle of life, I think, though maybe that comes out a little more clearly uh, in the extended edition of this, which I guess we should talk about too. Um, but yeah, I think he's, he's up to all of that, but he also really does want to tell the story of, this family or story maybe is the wrong way to put it because obviously the one thing this film is not is kind of straightforwardly narrative, but he really does want to look at this family um, and explore the ways that our memories of childhood affect who we turn out to be and how that relates us to the larger universe, the larger everything to God. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that, yeah, it's not merely um, just an occasion to do some philosophizing about evil, but uh, yeah, and I, I, I think that that itself speaks to the sort of overarching um, philosophy that Malik uh, sort of, you see his films imbued with, which, which is that those big themes are, well, just as you said, Urban, I mean, they are even the smallest things in this life, a little vignette of, you know, running a memory of running through a, a forest or playing with your brother. All of these things are imbued with the greatest of significance um, regarding things that you can contemplate the highest things, these things, it's, it's as if it's, it's a very sacramental, um, very, I would argue very Catholic, uh, even Christian sense of things where creation is just shot through with meaning. Creation is shot through with the exhaustive providence of God and everything is of almost equal and grand significance, right? There are no small moments or big moments. Yeah, that also yeah, makes I think it it's a specifically to pick out the one scene that you were saying would be kind of uh, like the thing that you mm-hmm. identify with this movie. 
because for me, there's lots of images I have. I mean, it's been commented many times with regard to any of Malick's movies, but this one in particular, that anywhere you pushed pause, you could frame that and put it on your wall. <laughs> um, but in terms of an actual scene or sequence, like there's ones that I remember very clearly um, just because they resonated with me in some way, but it's not a movie that I think has a kind of central, like, ah, uh, this is the scene of that movie. Um, that like, I don't know what you do with this movie when you, uh, do like a clip of it before giving an Academy award or something. Um, <laughs> like just, yeah. Jessica Chastain levitating as she twirls under the tree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it seems it seems like a very anti-nihilistic movie in the sense that there's coming from a certain perspective. I can almost imagine someone watching this and thinking like, "Oh, look." I mean, like when you compare the scenes of, you know, the the, you know, backyard in Texas with the cosmic scale, you know, this look how look how little it is, right? But there's almost a sense in which, you know, there's that that internet meme about you know it's something to the effect of oh god created you know a universe that's a you know a hundred thousand light years across and you think earth matters <laughs> and it's like yeah that's kind of the point right where you seem it takes a while i don't i don't remember exactly when it's like 45 minutes into the movie or something where you finally get that kind of big cosmic act but this idea that in the midst of this entire cosmic dance which that opening quote from Job helps get to as well, right? It's not just the question about suffering. It's this idea that you have, right? The stars and the angels, right? Singing in heaven that even in the midst of that, right? You know, shooting your little brother in the finger with a BB gun still has this sort of weighty cosmic moral significance is a really fascinating and really weighty thing to really experience and to watch kind of unfold, which I think that Malik's choice to have very little dialogue in the film too really helps as well, where the score and the visuals and the facial expressions do a lot of that work for you. Yeah. There's a line that Jessica Chastain, the mom says, I don't know, maybe about 45 minutes in, um, and this is the kind of thing that you see in a character will say in a lot of, or in a number of Terrence Malick movies. And when you just say it, it doesn't sound it's like you have to see it within the context of the film mm -hmm. and the beauty of the film. But she even says to the, she's, uh, you know, seemingly speaking to the children. It's when she's sort of telling them about life and she says something like, um, love smiles through all things. And I mean, that's just such a Catholic sacramental view of creation that the world is just imbued with the glory of God. And that in a way, it's almost um, sinful to ever despair when you're just surrounded. Brad Pitt's character says something about this later on. It's almost sinful to despair when you're surrounded by such glory. So I don't know much about Terrence yeah, Malick's. That was really sort of significant. I mean, I don't know that much about Terrence Malick's biography. I guess none of us in a certain way do. He's famously a recluse. He doesn't show up to the premieres of his own movies. His producers do all the interviews for him, et cetera. 
Um, I actually do know a priest who has his cell number and texts with them from time to time. I asked wow. him this morning, does he still talk to him? And he said, well, I wished him a happy birthday <laughs> in November, but otherwise not so much. Yeah. Uh, and Terrence Malick is 79 years old now, which is older than I thought. Born in 1943. But um, no, I was going to say, I don't know that much about his sort of personal journey of faith. Um, but it's interesting to me just looking at his film development. So I, I recently got to see his first movie, Badlands. And I have a thing with Malick, like I mentioned, of I have to see these in a theater, which means that there's some really important Malick movies I still have not seen including mm-hmm. both Days of Heaven and The Thin Red Line, just because mm-hmm. I've never had the opportunity to see them on the big screen. But over Thanksgiving, I was in Georgia with family, and a little art house theater nearby was showing Badlands. So I showed up to watch it. And I have to say, I mean, it's beautifully shot. It makes the Midwest look much nicer than uh, I've ever thought the Midwest looked. Um, and Martin Sheen and Sissy <laughs> Spacek are great. But... To me, it's shocking that this movie is made by the same person who made The Tree of Life, because Badlands is dealing with something that's huge. It's dealing with serial killers, basically, in this kind of uh, natural-born killers kind of setup. And yet, the movie is so kind of slow and boring and dusty monochrome and nihilistic that it's like nothing has any meaning, including these mass murders. It's just like, I mean, he just can't. Like the the temperature of the movie just never rises in any way. So I don't know if I'm reading that film correctly. I don't know if that's what he was after. I don't know how much of that is an effect of him just having no budget and no kind of um, industry behind him when he was cutting his first movie. But it definitely seems like by the time you get to Tree of Life, he's discovered a sacramental worldview. Um, And suddenly these same sort of mundane everyday details become something that, I mean, the, the lust scene is a great example of this, right? The way he chooses to depict this kid, you know, coming into adolescence and starting to have lustful desires or romantic desires and not knowing what to do with them, et cetera. Instead of making this, you know, some kind of scene where there's actual interaction between a boy and girl with all the awkwardness that, that would entail or the potential um, sort of, you know, upsetting dimensions that that could involve. He does this all almost iconographically where young Jack breaks into his crush's house after her family leaves and steals this negligee sort of thing that she sleeps in. I mean, not anything scandalous, but clearly like a nightgown kind of thing and steals it and is just looking at this and then is so paranoid that someone's going to know that he has done this or that he was thinking of her in this way. And I'm not even sure he knows what way that is. He's still quite mm-hmm. young, um, but he's out by the river with it. He's hiding it under a plank. He's worried that the guy in the boat that was passing by saw him and knows what he's thinking, what he's up to. So he ends up throwing it into the rapids of this river. And the way that this is directed, cut, acted, whatever, you just see so clearly what this boy is going through in this tumultuous discovery of a whole dimension of reality and interpersonal relationship that he'd never known before. Um, but the way Malik chooses to do that is just this little item that becomes a synecdoche for this entire world. Um, and it's not just, you know, modest and tasteful, but it's also, I think, very crafted. Um, 
it's very much Malik saying this matters um, and the stuff of this world matters and the stuff of our culture, our life, our society means something uh, and taking that and using it to open up. Yeah. This kind of grand symbology of adolescence. Yeah. It's, it, it is interesting. I, I obviously we don't know very much about him. It seems to me I, I, I cannot, I mean, uh, I cannot imagine that Malik is not a practicing Catholic or um, Anglican or Orthodox or something along those lines. I, I can't imagine him not being a serious Christian, nor can I imagine him, no offense, but I can't imagine him being a kind of non-denominational Christian either. That just doesn't, this is, this, this, he, he could not and would not make the kind of films that he does if that were true. Um, one of the things that really surprised me, and this is not, I'm sure this is not big information. Uh, I think I just saw it on his Wikipedia page. Um, but he, he, he's clearly an incredibly, um, bright guy, even in an academic sense. So he was at Oxford doing a PhD in philosophy. He didn't finish, but he ended up publishing like, um, a translation, I think of, uh, something in Wittgenstein or no Heidegger. Um, and then he taught at philosophy at MIT for a while. Um, so he clearly, he, I mean, he could have been a very gifted academic philosopher. Um, His undergrad was at Harvard too. He's yeah, yeah. an official Harvard man, went to the college. <laughs> yeah. So it's not every day that you get someone of that caliber of intellect to work in Hollywood. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, really so, fascinating. I texted both of you earlier this week when I discovered doing research for this pod that in 2018, the Criterion Collection released an extended edition of this, a director's cut of the, I mean, I, I have to assume it's Terrence Malick. They're all director's cuts. He's not giving this authority over to anyone else, but at least an alternative longer version of this movie that unfortunately none of the three of us have seen, right? And couldn't uh, scramble up in these days because it's just a physical media product. So I think you've got to get the DVD or the Blu-ray from Criterion. Um, and I'd love to see this eventually, but I was reading just a little about it online and we've alluded to this a couple times already, but of course, Sean Penn is sort of barely in this movie. Um, and that came as a shock to a lot of people who went and saw this. But I think first and foremost, that came as a shock to Sean Penn when <laughs> Sean Penn went and saw this, uh, because I think they filmed a whole lot more. There was a whole lot more in the script um, than made it onto the screen in the theatrical version. And I don't know. I mean, Maybe Sean Penn just didn't understand what Terrence Malick does because a lot of the sort of not great comments he made about Tree of Life after the premiere made it seem like you just didn't understand who this director was or what sort of thing he was going to do. Sean Penn said he wanted it to be just a more straightforward story. Just like, yeah, it's never uh, in any movie I've ever seen of Terrence Malick's has that been a thing. Um, but... The extended edition apparently spends a lot more time with him and his own sort of family situation in, you know, the 2000s, whenever that's supposed to be in downtown Houston, or probably spliced together with other places too, but at least part of that is uh, in downtown Houston, where he's an architect, apparently. Um, and then also more time with Brad Pitt's character, with his father, back in the 50s, and I guess the two things that sort of come out of this extended edition that aren't in the version we've all seen 
is that Sean Penn at this point is himself the father of a young son. Um, and I guess is also someone who is sort of failing repeatedly, uh, as he struggles with marital fidelity. And then in terms of Pitt's character, I guess the longer version makes him seem a lot more pathetic rather than just kind of stern and this disciplinarian type, uh, and dives into his relationship with his own dad and his attempt to avoid his dad's parenting mistakes. And so I guess in this version, the whole story ends up having a lot more kind of endless cycle of dysfunctional fathers and sons sort of theme to it. Uh, an unhappy kind of circle of life. Um, but what do you think? I mean, obviously none of us have seen this version. We can't comment on it directly, but watching the version of tree of life, we all know and love. Do you walk away from it wishing that you had more information about these characters? Do you think Pitt should have more depth? Do you think Sean Penn should have more, um, sort of breadth? Should we know more about him than just that he got in a fight with his dad and is looking back on his life? So from my perspective, I thought about this question. Um, the, the only, the only more information I would even be slightly curious about would be the relationship between husband and wife, honestly, because very specifically, I think the, the father and the mother are specifically cast and referred to as father and mother, right? It's, it's, it's far, obviously they need a marital relationship for the family to exist as it does but it's it seems like the focus is not really on their relationship it's their it's their relationship with the children so if 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 anything i'd be curious about how these two people end up together because it's 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 very clear i'm not sure that the film makes you feel like Brad Pitt may have never said the word love out loud before one time <laughs> cuz and so I, I would kind of be curious about that, but the way that you described what the extended edition might be to me would almost make it a completely different movie because when you're in the midst of experiencing the father's issues and the son kind of acting out and, it, and both kind of imitating and attempting to not be like his own father you do, at least to me, get a kind of redemptive bend towards the end where you can say, okay, well, there's this, there's this clear, this clear phase, this, this kid, the son is going through, but then there is this kind of redeeming moment because you have the two moments really with the, the moment where the brothers are tender with one another. And then the moment after where father and son are tender together. And that's, that's kind of the moment where you can tell towards the end is, you know, Brad Pitt's walking away and turns around. You can tell he wants to say, I love you, but he just can't bring himself to do it. And he just kind of turns around and walks away. And then the rest of the movie has this, at least to me, very kind of hopeful trajectory, even as it kind of ends relatively quickly. But if that's, if that's the version that's a kind of director's cut, that seems to me like it would be a different story almost. Yeah. I, I'd like, I'd like to see the director's cut and I I've seen enough t uh, Malik to to think that uh if Malik added more content it's probably good. <laughs> um but I certainly don't think this movie in its current in its sort of theatrical state, theatrical release date is 
lacking in a way that you go, oh, I really need to see the director's cut to see if it kind of saves the movie or something. I think if you're good, yeah, if he's going to add more content, you'd almost have to add a lot more content. Otherwise, you just end up throwing in something that detracts from the overarching um plot or plot you know the narratival the general loose narratival structure i thought one thing that, that malik did do well <clears throat> yeah that you mentioned josh is it it does show us a little bit about the relationship between the husband and the the wife <clears throat> maybe only in the ways that that relationship impacts the jack's um views of his father but to me, that also mm -hmm. seemed very true to life. So the tensions between the parents were heavily influential on how the children saw the parents and the kind of anger that they had with their parents. It wasn't just, oh, dad was mean to me. It was also, I mean, and maybe even primarily that they saw he was so unkind and in some ways abusive to their mother, whom they all love so much, right? So the movie doesn't go into this, but I wondered because of the way that his mother is remembered, I wondered if she ended up passing away sometime along the way to where he has not had her in his life in a long time. Because the kinds of memories he have he has of his mom seem not just idealized in the sense that she was a good woman, but there's something... Brad Pitt's character feels more like setting up for the relationship that Jack has with his father today. Whereas Jessica Chastain's character, who's completely, you know, ethereal, um, she's Grace and Pitt's nature, whatever. We can talk mm -hmm. about that too. Um, the, uh, the yeah. Dilubach thesis of Tree of Life, um, or not, but, um, but yeah, it made me wonder, is this you remembering someone that you've not seen in a very long time, but have just this perfect memory of as kind of mm. the embodiment of everything good in your life and your childhood in a way that might be, I don't know, more nuanced or a little more real or something if when he calls his dad in the movie, you know, he says, okay, and put mom on now or something. Um, it's hard to imagine... I mean, maybe they would have. It was the time. I certainly hope they would have. But from what we get in this movie, it's kind of hard to imagine Pitt and Chastain staying together for decades after this. That doesn't seem like um, quite the dynamic the relationship has at this point. But you certainly hope that healing can come into that. But yeah, it just made me wonder. Obviously, he's wrestling primarily with his father in all of this. Um, but... But how long mm. was he able to have yeah, I think, Chastain after this too? Yeah, I mean, my 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 hope would be, like I mentioned, it seemed to me, like my perspective was that it ended on a a trajectory of hope where the one time it maybe maybe he does it more than once, but the only the only time I can remember Pitt doing a voiceover is the one towards the end that Taylor, I think you mentioned where he talks about it's an, it's essentially an admission of regret and mm -hmm. conver conversion almost where he's, he, he mentions that there, there was all this glory along the way and I missed yeah. it. Right. And you, you can only say that from a perspective where you've actually come to see something that you, you should have seen all along. And so that 
at least to me, that's I, I would hope that there would be after they move, right? Because they, they move away and it's kind of all all she you know, all she wrote as far as the actual the story of the timeline back in the fifties. And so that trajectory of hope, I would imagine, I would hope that they would kind of within this new fresh start would maybe hopefully have something be healed. But I do think, Urban, you're right. I mean, I also would imagine if his mother was still alive, that he he might not be talking to his dad, right? He'd just be talking to her and, you know, about dad or something, right? It's, it seems like more of that kind of generation's relationship, but I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a re- that yeah, it is a really interesting question. I mean, she's certainly portrayed as, in an idealistic way. Well, she's Although, still white. Yeah, right, right, right exactly. In the, in the glass coffin. Yeah. Yeah, those the are really interesting I get, though, moments is... where you get something that's so... Go ahead. Oh, sorry, sorry, Urban. We're on a delay here for anyone who's listening, so it's easy to cut each other off, and then so it's a little awkward. Um, we're doing our best. Yeah, we're doing our best. Uh, <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I, I think the question that you asked about whether she's idealized is a really good question. And it seems to me, of course, she is if if you're comparing you know, this film to the full breadth of a life and the relationship that you would have with someone, even if it's a really great relationship. Of course, there's moments where someone loses their cool a little bit or whatever. Um, but it seems to me, this is my guess, of course, I could be wrong, but that what Malik is trying to show is that there's even a line in the film, I think, that's, that says something like this. I think it's Jack sort of speaking to himself or in prayer. And he says something about how, like, I didn't know, <clears throat> I didn't know that, that what I was looking for was you, or I didn't know that it was you that was all around. And then he says something about, I, I found you like through her something. I mean, that's paraphrasing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that is what really is being portrayed throughout the whole film is that she she really is a a and, and and I think this gets into the ending that we can talk about as well but I think she really is a a a very uh, holy person and she is a touchstone for Jack to um to the life of grace. And so in a way, she's the kind of embodiment of a life of grace. She's the icon or the illustration. And I do think it's true that Brad Pitt is meant to, in many ways, illustrate the life of nature. So the beginning of the film, right? She's explaining, mm-hmm. okay, here's these two ways. There's the way of nature and the way of grace. I the think nuns it's taught us in school. Yeah, exactly. The nuns. Yeah. I think it'd be a little bit too simple, right, to say it's just a one-to-one thing because Brad Pitt is more three-dimensional than that and has moments of grace in his relationship with Jack. Uh, but she is always speaking these words of wisdom. She's so uh, elegant. She is idealized, but I think, yeah, because for for Jack, uh, she and for us, she's meant to be the kind of, stained glass window through which the light is coming and the love for their mother, which is an easy thing to have becomes a bridge to the difficult love uh, of man's love for God, Jack's love for God. Yeah, I completely agree. Hmm. I think that one thing that's interesting is that I think it's only with her. I mean, of course we have the actual, like cutscenes or whatever you want to call them, where suddenly you're in the desert or 
on the beach in heaven or going through the doorway or the dinosaurs are here or whatever. But in terms of being set within the action of the story itself, it seems like only with her that you get these very surreal um, sort of scenes where I've mentioned already her dancing under the yeah. the oak tree mm-hmm. and kind of twirling, levitating in the air. There's also, as you alluded to, the kind of Snow White scene in the forest where she's in a glass coffin uh, with this sort of like, I don't know, it looks like Botticelli dressed her or something. Um, and then there's the yeah. scene <laughs> that really struck me last night where she's giving birth to the first son, to Jack. And of course, you get the, the beautiful um, image of his little foot held between two hands that ends up being the poster of the movie or at least a poster of the movie but in that scene where she's giving birth she and absolutely everyone else there is wearing the purest white ever except the father but Uh anyway you two are fathers i am not i don't think that's usually quite how that goes so it's just striking (laughs) that even in that moment he's choosing to do something that is not literal at all um but to portray something really beautiful. I mean, there's something almost, you know, um, kind of immaculate, uh, about what's going on there. And I use that word deliberately that she's mm-hmm. clearly got something very Marian about her throughout this movie, not to say she's sinless, not to say that, uh, you know, she, um, is anything more than a woman, but she seems like a woman who plays very much the role, um, that Mary plays for all of us. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that Malik is intending her this to be merely a kind of allegory of Mary, but it's, there's no way that that's not, that she's not in a way supposed to be an icon or image. Uh, I mean, the, everything, especially when you talk about the end of the film, I mean, here's this mother, right? She loses her son, et cetera. Um, but I, I've, I don't think I've ever seen, I, I maybe have not seen a particular piece of art, statue, painting, icon, whatever, which has made me so, um, uh, increased my love for the Blessed Mother as much as this film. I mean, it just, um, yeah, you can, you can just see that this is, uh, Again, not that this is meant to be allegorically the Blessed Mother, but the, all of the perfections and all of the beauty and the grace that you see in the mother in this film is um, an echo of uh, the Blessed Mother. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about how it's not it's not an allegory, but that there are these universal sort of transcendental ideas yeah. and truths that shine through because there's a sense in which like you were mentioning urban it reminded me of the kind of thing tolkien is talking about in his uh on fairy stories essay where it's it's this memory where you know so so for for tolkien for tolkien the fairy tale the fantasy story is essentially where man enters the perilous realm and sort of deals with what he what he finds there and so the fact that it would not be allegorical in a kind of you know, Narnian sense, right? But that it would just unequivocally be unable to avoid true things because of how it deals with this real, this reality. And I think you were mentioning a while ago how it portrays what's universal through what's particular. And I think that it does a really good job with that, with these sing very particular, singular, historical individuals, but in that creates these very universal 
archetypes that real goodness and beauty and truth can simply just shine through what he's doing without it being this kind of saccharine, um, you know, false idea of what might be true, if that makes sense. Absolutely. There's something really beautiful too about Jessica Chastain. So this is her breakout performance, right? Like we didn't know who Jessica Chastain was before the tree of life. And she went on to do the zero dark 30, uh, thing and to now obviously she just won best actress last year for the eyes of tammy faye a movie that no one actually saw but uh she put on a lot of makeup and i'm sure she was great in it but this is the first time you see her and this is a beautiful actress and the first time we're meeting her is as a mother um and not as you know a mother and um some like young bombshellish very sexy thing whatever this is the purest character um, relating totally to her small child throughout this. And she is so captivating, so beautiful. We forge such a relationship with her in this movie. And I think that's really, really rare for a young actress to have this be their kind of introduction to the world because it's neither a kind of sex pot thing nor is it like a child actress kind of thing where she's doing something appealing to a much younger audience or something. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, she's an actress in Hollywood. She has plenty of politics I don't agree with. But in terms of what she does on screen, she's one of my favorite actresses. And I love that this is the first thing that introduced me to her. Yeah, it's amazing what ta- what Malik does where, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. She She's... um in this film in particular, she's beautiful and she's portrayed in, in, in such a way that her beauty sort of shines through, but also in the most wholesome way. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, what Malik is able to do that he's able to show such a beautiful woman so gracefully and yet he keeps the eye on her, the, 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 on her beauty in the most pure and modest way. You're, you're never distracted from, from a wholesome, uh, motherly sense of her beauty where she's, she's just a sort of archetypal of the beauty of woman. She's not, she's in no way is she ever objectified throughout the yeah. film. And I, it's, it's amazing that he can do that. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm always astonished that Malik is able to pull off any of what he's able to pull off without it feeling. I know a lot of people think that Malik is just pretentious, but it never feels saccharine or thin. And I mean, to, to throw out some of the lines and the pictures of light and everything while someone is saying, you know, that love smiles through all things. It sounds awful. It sounds like you could, no one could ever do that and it not just be a big joke. And somehow yeah. you're sitting there with tears in your eyes the whole time. Yeah. yeah. On top and of that, who- usually, usually to me, voiceover never works very well. That is exactly yeah, right. what I was about to say, Josh. I'm usually someone but- who despises voiceover. And someone who loves a good oneer, loves like extended, hold the camera on this person and let Mm -hmm. them just cook. And Mm -hmm. Malik, I was wondering last night watching this, aside from the things where you're watching like the universe form, what is the longest time the camera goes without cutting to the next thing? And if you told me it was less than five seconds for the whole movie, I would believe you. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. 
Yeah, that's true. Cause that's, that's probably my, it might be my favorite aspect of the movie because it's something that almost shouldn't work. This consistent, I mean, I, I, maybe, maybe my memory is just poor, but if, again, if you told me, oh, there's more voiceover dialogue than actual in, you know, in scene dialogue, I would also probably believe you because there's so oh, much. I of think it. that's true. I think yeah. there's way more. And yeah. it works so well. And to me, it just seems like we've talked about how, how biblical, not just sort of the story archetypes and a lot of the imagery is, but a lot of the dialogue and the voiceover and the language and not just the explicit quotation of scripture, but the kind of, uh, like, you know, midrash on scripture kind of sort of summarizing and sort of re retranslating almost. But there's also a sense in which I could not get away from how Augustinian most of the dialogue seemed in this very kind of self-reflective speaking directly to God aspect of a lot of the voiceover narrative, especially young Jack. Right. Young Jack just seems like a little Augustine character in so many ways, not just in his attempts at prayer and his questioning about, you know, where are you? And I found you here and I was looking for you here. But even in it's you could almost have replaced breaking the windows with the little gang of boys with stealing pears. Right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because you could tell in his face like, oh, it's something I kind of want to do. But afterwards, I'm not really sure what I was doing or if I wanted to do it at all. And yeah, it's just really, really, really Augustinian to me, that yep. self-reflection that's just completely searching, searching for something. Yeah. It's kind of the closest thing we get to an act of pure evil on his part, or maybe the BB gun with his brother is, yeah. but it does seem like Malik is after that. Like how, how pure and evil um, can we find? And it's interesting that you can find it in a little boy. I mean, we're theologians. We know that there's actually no such thing as pure evil. And Augustine certainly knows that too. Uh, even with the Paris story, he's able to find something that makes it intelligible, some shading of good, which is the good of kind of perverse friendship, but perceived as friendship. If the others hadn't been there, he wouldn't have done it, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, an exploration of what we're capable of. And in an age today where I think so many filmmakers are, and not just filmmakers, right? This is just the culture that sin isn't real. We don't really do anything bad, nothing all that serious anyway, or at least I don't do anything bad. My friends, my normal people don't do anything bad. It's just those bad guys out there, whether they be um, an enemy in global politics or someone in the other political party, those monsters, whatever. But in terms of just quotidian life, oh, no, no one's really doing anything that significantly wrong. And Malik's really interested in saying, like, part of the answer to this theodicy is like the Chesterton thing of uh, what's wrong with the world, dear sirs, I am. Jack is clearly part of the problem here. And in as much as this is autobiography, Malik's owning up to that and saying, I'm not just victim, I am victim, Um, Mm -hmm. but I've also victimized myself uh, in the sense that I've also been the offender against myself as victim at so many points along the way, which is a really intricate study of the effects of sin. Yeah. Yeah, it's small things. I mean, it's all things that if you heard a kid did them, if you heard your kid did them, you'd be angry. But if, you know, your friend told you, oh, I got in big trouble this one time when I was a kid, 
a lot of it is stuff that you would you you know you wouldn't think oh my gosh it's the kind you know breaking a window i mean the stealing of the the negligee is 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 odd but again it's not earth these are not huge earth shattering things it's not like he mur- murdered someone or you know um even the shooting of his brother's finger it sounds like something you know that my uncles might talk about that they did when they were younger but it's clear <laughs> that these are like really perverse moments in the yeah. life of these and they have this weight that once the decision is made it just is weighs the character down so much when you get the one temptation by far the most serious temptation that he does not give into which is when his oh. dad is working under the car and the car is <laughs> up right. on the car and you just freeze i remember the first time i saw it freezing thinking is yeah. this movie about to become that movie and <laughs> thank god it doesn't but you wonder because you've watched him transform himself in a really negative way morally over the course of whatever the preceding half hour that if you told me it was four and a half minutes, I'd believe you because I have no sense of time in a Malik movie. But (laughs) (laughs) And don't you think that it wasn't that scene was not just meant to be nor was it portrayed this way. It's not just a scene of, ooh, suspense, and then, you know, it ends up, oh, that was a, you know, that was a roller coaster ride for that minute of that scene. It's, I think he doesn't do it, but the fact that he's considering it is itself a, um, an evil, of course. Definitely. And it's, it's portraying it that way. Like, like this is a kid who's really has fallen and is on the wrong, on the wrong track. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did y'all think of? So we talked about Chastain a little bit, and in my research, at least, I didn't find any other um, possibilities of people who might have played the mother in this movie. But there's some interesting casting possibilities in terms of I actually don't know who these uh, people were signed up to play, whether it was the Sean Penn character or the Brad Pitt character, but some names that were thrown around apparently of people who read for this or were committed to it at different points because this movie took forever to make. Um, were Colin Farrell, Mel Gibson, and Heath Ledger, who actually was signed onto this project and pulled out a month before his death in early 2008. I think mm-hmm. he was supposed to play the Brad Pitt character, uh, but pulled out a month before his death just because he'd been having these recurring sicknesses that, of course, um, anyway, we can speculate yeah. about the connection between that and what finally killed him. But... Yeah. um it's so interesting to think of any of those people inserted into these roles. I mean, the Sean Penn thing, I think, works perfectly, but also, at least in the version we've seen, is not probably big enough that this makes a huge difference. But yeah. in terms of Brad Pitt, what do yeah. y'all think of this Brad Pitt character? Well, the, the Sean Penn thing I think you mentioned is true. Because I mean, honestly, one of the questions I wrote down was like, is Sean, do we even need Sean Penn's character? Um, <laughs> I think we need the character. But yeah, I think... Any any number of capable people, I think, could step into that because it's not so much about about that. But I I do think Brad Pitt works really well. I think it's been said that he's you know Brad Pitt's the most beautiful character actor uh, that we've ever had. Right? He's not he's not sort of your typical leading character, even though he's usually the most beautiful person in your film. Um, so I th- I think he works really well for this because I think he has that kind of somber gravitas that works for this particular character. Yeah. I thought he was able to pull off the 1950s 
dad and all of the complexities that go with that. I thought he was able to pull it off really well. There's clearly moments where, like Jack, you see him as just, I mean, just a, a, a overbearing, abusive person. Uh, but then there's these moments of tenderness, um, but yet this reserve where he'll let himself go and show his affection for his children, but then you can see him pulling it back. Um, it, so neither a caricature of a 1950s dad nor just glossing over the clearly almost universal problems with fatherhood during that time period in American history. I just, I have a hard time imagining some of those other actors that we've named pulling, pulling that off. Mm. I agree with you. I think it's also, I mean, I'm not a Brad Pitt uh, completionist, even though he's one of my favorite actors, but I've definitely not seen everything he's done by a long shot. But it seems like maybe the only time in his career he's done something that's um, this kind of stoic and cruel might be overstated, but, you know, that uh, that sort of direction and yeah. I think he plays it very straight and very convincingly. And for someone we have as much baggage with as Brad Pitt, I mean, it's not that you don't know that you're watching Brad Pitt, but he really becomes the character in a real way. You believe that that's Jack's dad. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, there's there's almost a sense in which I, I can imagine I can imagine this this character. I can imagine Mr. O'Brien being the same Brad Pitt who would survive uh, Fury, right? Brad Pitt's in the, the World War II Fury movie, right? It's, mm-hmm. And it's, it's a similar kind of stoic dealing with clearly like sort of traumatic events and circumstances. And if, if memory, I'm pretty sure he dies in the end of that movie, but if he had survived, I can imagine this being that character, right? Cause it's yeah. positive. <laughs> I think it's been a while, right? But but I, I assume he's right. He's of that age where if he's right, if it's if this is like mid fifties, right? You can imagine he's of the age that he, if he didn't go fight, if he didn't serve during the war, he he easily could have. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence, I think, sociologically speaking, where that's that generation that comes back from fighting the war deals with a lot of issues as parents, as fathers. Right. Um, and I didn't like my, I didn't know my grandfather who died when I was one. Um, right. But just, you know, secondhand stories from that generation, right. That's obviously something you deal with coming back. And so if there's a lot of issues in fatherhood in the fifties and sixties, you're, you're not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I think, um, I think Brad Pitt did a really great job. Obviously Jessica Chastain sort of steals the screen, um, Mm -hmm. and she's meant to do so, but I have a hard time imagining a better portrayal of that, um, yeah, that 1950s, which is, which in and of itself is such an interesting question. Um, why was it the case that, um, fatherhood, uh, was, um, in 1950s America, 1940s, 1930s? 
almost universally the case that the fathers were unable to show or display love and affection in, in any kind of natural way for their children. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I did have another, um, question that I wanted to put out there. Um, what do you think is the significance of the creation scene? Obviously it's one of the things that people talk about so much. Is it just that in your opinion, is it just that, um, he's highlighting the truth of the Job quote that we get at the beginning of the film, that these small, uh, seemingly small stories have a place in the, have a place in the overarching, uh, grand cosmic story of creation and providence. Um, and that at the end of the day, one has to just take one's place in relation to that and not try to um, neither try as the priest who's giving a homily says to make sure that only good things happen to us and we can eschew all bad things, but also not even trying to um, discover the meaning behind the evil things that happen in our lives, but simply to, you know, in a way abandon ourselves to the providence of this God who (laughs) puts together this entire beautiful creation. Yeah, I think so if I'm remembering correctly, the the lot the Jessica Chastain, the mother character, has the voiceover line, where were you? And then it launches you into that big sequence yeah. or however long it is. Yeah, um, where were you? <laughs> yeah. So I think I I and Lacrimosa is sung uh, over and over by over the and over again, right. Yeah. So I think I, I honestly think it's a bit of, and I, I wrote this down because I, I think it's, I think that's one of the major questions. And I think that I don't have quite a definitive answer, but I think that that whole sequence, the whole right from, from beginning to end with creation and, and everything like that, it functions to me almost like a kind of Rorschach test where if you're coming at it from a nihilistic perspective, I think you do have that sort of that will be your answer, right? Well, it's, it's not ultimately too meaningful and you just kind of have to find your place and you're never going to get an answer and, and this kind of thing. But that's ultimately the problem of Job, right? Cause you, you never really get, that's the whole point of that quotation, right? It's not yep. here. Let me answer, let me answer all of your questions and justify myself. It's more of, you have a place, you're a creature, right? Where were you when I was doing all of this? And the answer is obviously, well, I wasn't there. And so there's a lot that I don't know. And so there's a lot of things that I simply can't receive in my particular created contingent spot. And so I think that it works as a, a lot of the, a lot of the film asks the question about God's silence. I think that's even explicit in one of the, one of the voiceovers, right? Cause it's, it's something about, you know, it's had, you know, do you see God when you see him face to face and you realize he's there? Or do you also see God when you realize he's turned your, his back on you? Right. And so there's a sense in which even the divine silence is a kind of presence in the sense uh-huh. that you have to recognize, you have to recognize God's presence to even realize that he's, being silent otherwise it's a kind of meaningless question so so for me yeah it 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 totally works as a very as we were talking before as a very sacramental um steeping of even the smallest moments with Mm -hmm. cosmic 
significance. So that's that's how it works for me. I don't know if you have anything else to add, Urban, or object to. Uh, no, sorry, I fell out of the recording for a minute, so I missed some of that. But yeah, yeah. Uh, but the end of that was beautiful. And if I can take us from the sublime to the ridiculous, um, mm-hmm. I fell out when you were talking about the echo of uh, fury that you got in Brad Pitt uh, and his character in this movie. I was just going to say the one Brad Pitt performance, also a World War II performance, that at one moment I got a surprising kind of reminder of in this is when they're in the restaurant and he's just come back from his kind of world tour trying to do whatever mm-hmm. business deal he was trying to do. And they're in the restaurant and he's being so awful to that waitress. But he's insisting to her with the pasta, al dente, al dente. <laughs> All I could hear in that moment was Gorlami, Gorlami from Inglorious Bastards as he tries to pronounce his own last name in the undercover thing. But uh, no, fantastic. Yeah, that is funny, right? He just comes back from this world tour and now he's this man of the world. So he always orders his pasta al dente, but it, he doesn't know how to pronounce <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, Which, so funny. by the way, no one in Italy does. Yeah, all right. They just right. call that pasta. I, I was wondering, um, this is just a very particular question, but I, I've, I've never, one of the, the things in this movie that I don't really have any thoughts about, what is Malik trying to do here? And it kind of gets lost in the rest of the creation scene, but it's such a peculiar scene. So when we get to the dinosaurs, the, the infamous dinosaurs, um, Which again, I think was, I think this was right around the point when the old couple left the movie because, you know, they thought they were going to get a family drama with Brad Pitt. And once they saw dinosaurs on the screen, (laughs) uh, um, okay. But you get the one dinosaur, I don't know, my kids would know, like a plesiosaur or whatever. And it's bleeding all on the side. It's a wounded. Yeah. Yeah. It's wounded. And then it shows the circling of sharks. So apparently it has been attacked by sharks or something like that and come out of the sea. And it seems to me we're meant to see here in a way the, well, what Jessica Chastain says at the beginning of the film about the way of nature. I don't know what exactly what she says, but paraphrasing, right? Nature is about serving itself. Nature is harsh, right? It's unforgiving. Um, and then the very, I think it's the very next scene or vignette. You get the one where there's another dinosaur that seems to have been wounded. And then a predator comes up. And it looks like the dinosaur that's been wounded is fearful and expecting to be eaten or whatever. And then the predator comes up and puts his foot on the neck or on the head. And you're expecting the predator, at least I am expecting the predator to just attack and eat it. Mm -hmm. And although it's sort of subjugating it in a very harsh way, it ends up taking its foot off almost as if it's showing some rudimentary sympathy or something and ends up running away. And that's the end of that scene. And I don't know what to, I have no idea. And you, you guys have thoughts about, is Malik trying to show that even in nature, at some point in evolutionary um, progress of animality, that this sense of sympathy is developed in? I, what, do, what do you think is going on there? Is there supposed to be a callback with the, I mean, the carjack scene is later, but with the carjack, looking back to that, of this moment where you could do something gruesome and yet there's mercy, at least mercy uh, kind of analogically here in some way. Yeah. I don't know is what's going through the dinosaur's mind. If this other dinosaur is some kind of more amphibious or water dwelling thing that's now cast onto land and stuck here that at first this looks like prey. And then he recognizes like, maybe you're actually one of my own, um, Mm. like part of my kind. Uh, And so there's, 
yeah, more in common than you'd yeah. expected or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't have a super straightforward read. It seems like Malik is definitely trying to contextualize um, the things that are the biggest things for us existentially in our lives. The, mm-hmm. the relationship with a parent, the death of a brother um, into something that is infinitely larger. Well, finitely larger, I guess, but way, way, way larger. Um, And yeah, so I think it's, it's good that we get something between just the um, sort of supernovas and uh, the 1950s, the, sort of Mesozoic or whatever. Again, your kids could correct me and I want them thing here, but yeah, I don't know. Is this just showing us sympathy and recognition? Is this supposed to be a more deliberate echo with some of the subject matter of the movie? There's also a documentary that Malik came out with that I've never seen uh, in like 2016 thereabouts that just takes a lot of this creation stuff and runs with it, I guess. So I don't know if Tree of Life is what is directly um, what grew out of this or if the documentary thing is. But uh, one of the things I read is that Malik had the idea for this movie, at least this kind of movie with creation and everything going all the way back to the eighties or even the 1970s. And did you see in your uh, research what he called that in his notes for decades? No. Having gone through theology training, I thought this was hilarious. The name for this was Q. This was Q. (laughs) So all the way through, we're just waiting for Q. At some point we have to find Q. Well, at least this this one actually existed. So, right. (laughs) Um, I think you might, I think you're onto something with the, the parallel scene with the car Jack, because mm-hmm. if, and we haven't really talked about it at all, but if from the very beginning, right, you're, you're meant to view the two parents through these nature and grace archetypes, that's obviously a moment where you have the father, right? The nature archetype and nature in that moment is subverted. Because if, if, if they're just animals exactly, and you have this and you have one creature with the very easy opportunity to dispatch an enemy or an oppressor, right? In the world of nature, usually that's what happens, right? If one, you know, one creature gets a chance to off another who's its kind of rival or oppressor, it's going to happen. And with the camera kind of going back, you know, three different times, like Lingri centering that car jacket, you're just waiting to see what happens. It's clearly a moment of grace where grace subverts nature in that sense where, you know, what, what whatever is in young Jack of his mother wins in that moment. You know, he, he admits later, right, in that, that conversation between him and his father, right, that's, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot more like you. And that might be true, especially through everything that you you know we've seen in the movie up to that point with his wrestling with those moral decisions. But that's a moment where grace wins over nature. So I don't know if the same, I'm sure not the exact same ideas behind the, you know, the failure of whatever dinosaur it is to eviscerate its opponent. But it does seem like those are very, you know, you can set those in a diptych and put them next to each other. Yeah. Do y'all know people 
this is shifting gears, but this is interesting mm-hmm. to me. Do y'all know people who hate this movie? Like, are you close with people who have seen this movie and were just like, I absolutely despise this. This is not for me. Either what is this or I know what this is and I just want nothing to do with it. I don't think I've talked to anyone else who has seen it besides oh interesting besides you taylor my my wife i mean we saw it in the theater and she understands and appreciates it but she doesn't like it <laughs> put it that way she did i think she i think she recognizes that it is good but when i when i told her i we were i was going to be doing this podcast and i was going to rewatch the movie i asked her do you want to rewatch it with me or should i just watch it by myself she said just go ahead and rewatch it by yourself <laughs> That's yeah, funny. it seems like that's kind of um, been the reception of this movie from the beginning. It's one where everyone's kind of in agreement about what it is. I mean, not the old couple who left your screening, obviously, but <laughs> in terms of like critical response, um, everyone was sort of clear on what Malik is doing and that it's a very successful um execution of that thing that he wanted to do and for some people that really really worked because that was a thing worth doing and for some people it just wasn't and um they had no interest and they completely turned off from it so i've never i don't think with this movie met anyone who was like oh yeah that was okay i mean it's kind of middling for me i haven't checked the letterbox stats on it but it seems like one that would exist on a kind of bell curve where you've got a lot of five stars and a lot of half stars uh, and not many people who are cut down the middle. But um, I was interested to find that Roger Ebert actually had this as one of his favorite movies of all time. Um, So he gave it four out of four stars, Hmm. but he also put it in his sight and sound 2012 list. So we just got our sight and sound 2022 list a couple weeks ago. Right. So this comes out every 10 years and is allegedly, you know, the 100 greatest movies of all time. Um, but different, uh, very important critics are chosen to get to contribute to this, and they each contribute 10 votes. And he put this in, I can't remember, or I haven't seen where it was on his ballot, um, if it was his top movie or um, where it fell. But it's interesting that uh, it meant that much to him. And I actually found out that it landed in 2012 in that poll, at slot number 102. So it just missed being in the greatest films of mm. all time uh, by two spaces. And I think was one of like four or five movies. There's many more now this time around. But in 2012, I think it was like one of four or five movies from the 21st century. So in some, you know, uh, corners of the critical world, this did really, really well. Um, but then there are also a lot of critics who saw it and just had no time for it and thought it was completely indulgent and the music, yeah. the quick, quick cuts, the parallel stories, the voiceovers, the scissor happy editing. It's definitely a movie that colors outside the lines, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Don't you think a lot of people either that either Malik's aesthetic choices, not the cinematography. I think there'd be something wrong with you if you didn't think that the cinematography was beautiful, but the way in which he tells a story and particularly in this movie, um, either that it speaks to you um, or it doesn't. And if it doesn't speak to you, then you're not moved by the way in which he portrays the subject matter. Um, whereas for me, it, it hits me. So I, I find myself more moved by Malik movies because I think um, <clears throat> when there's a little, when there's more of a visible plot 
and more visible dialogue, it's easier for me to get lost in the story. But these vignettes to me transport me and show me the reality of what's going on more than where the story is more front and center. But don't you also think that with this particular film, unlike with other Malick films, because it has the creation scenes, because it has the dinosaurs for, for some people, this is just a bridge too far. I mean, it reminds (laughs) me a lot of, of my favorite film, which is 2001 A Space Odyssey. I can't believe it took 90 minutes. I know, right? Um, I was, I was going to say, I, I would bet every cent I had that the Venn diagram of people who love this movie and 2001 is just a circle. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And I realized I'm just doing a little bit of research for this podcast for the first time. I think he shot some scenes for the creation thing, didn't like them and found one of the guys who had worked with Kubrick on 2001 and especially those scenes towards the end of the film and then redid the creation scene with help from that guy from 2001. So clearly, I mean, this is not even just asking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so as I gave you my Roger Ebert spill, I uh, was not going to read this block quote of his review from the thing just so as not to take up time. But now that you've said that, I have to read this. Yeah. Uh, so this is Roger Ebert back in 2011. He says, The Tree of Life is a film of vast ambition and deep humility, attempting no less than to encompass all of existence and view it through the prism of a few infinitesimal lives. The only other film I've seen with this boldness of vision is Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and it lacked Malick's fierce evocation of human feeling. There were once several directors who yearned to make no less than a masterpiece, but now there are only a few. Malick has stayed true to that hope ever since his first feature in 1973. Yeah, that's great. Even the even the doorway, right? The biz, the big like mm-hmm. a big rectangle, all alone, right? So there's almost a kind of iconographic similarity. Yeah, in I think you need creation. I think you need this big a story. I mean, not story. You need this big a concept for what Malik does to work. Because mm-hmm. when I compare this, which to me is Malik's most successful film of the ones I've seen, of course, like I said, I'm missing some important ones. But of the ones I've seen, this is by far the most successful to me. Compare this what to me is by far the least successful, which is Song to Song. Have either of you ever seen Song to Song? I have no. not seen that one. So it was a few years after this, mid-20-teens, 2015 or something like that. But it is exactly this style of filmmaking. All the same everything. Applied to a confusing love triangle or love quadrangle at Austin city limits music festival. <laughs> it is awful. terrible. <laughs> I watched it last year when I was stranded in England with COVID and it put me in so much more pain. Oh my gosh. When you have something this big and over the top and dramatic and sacramental and iconographic applied to Rooney Mara and Michael Fassbender and Ryan Gosling. And I think Natalie Portman trying to figure out like who's dating who and what are our love lives and why is this complicated with our business relationships or whatever, just like absolutely shoot me in the face. This is yeah, that completely inadequate. <laughs> yeah. It's like the worst. I mean, it's an easy example of uh, the Aristotelian principle, right? That matter has to be disposed for form, but Oh man, not at all. Hylomorphism fail. Um, uh. <laughs> But when you have um, something like this, when you have something like a hidden life where the stakes are big in the sense that it's the Nazis, mm-hmm. but the stakes are ultimately big, in fact, because it's sainthood. Um, yeah. I think this works really well 
Um, but Malik can't do um, melodrama is my take. Well, yeah, at some point I'd, I'd love to discuss one, another Malik movie, which has some overlaps with this one, which I think was almost universally hated by critics, but which I think is fantastic. Maybe close to tree of life, which is uh, to the wonder with Ben Affleck, which I think is a fantastic film, but that's, that's a, uh, uh, I don't know, a different podcast. Um, yeah. I, I did want to ask, I did want to, you mentioned the door at the end. I wanted to discuss the ending. I, I know people who haven't seen it, you know, it's going to be spoilers, but I did want to discuss the ending, although I don't want to jump over something else if that you had. No, I think, it, I think, I think that's a good thing because we, we probably should bring it to a close sometime. You know, or else we're going to go on forever. And it's if if you whoever's listening has lasted this far, uh, truly they thank you. Out Twenty right? minutes in when they realized <laughs> yeah. the podcast this <laughs> No, yeah, go ahead. I'm I'm curious what yeah, what the question is. So okay, so well, one of the things that I wanted to say, which is just uh, if I have the opportunity to, I don't know, to voice my my hatred is well hatred is probably the right word for hollywood and everything that um revolves around hollywood and uh one of the things that gives me great joy is that a lot of these films and tree of life seems to me to be one of them uh it's a film where you a lot of people even in hollywood if you look up youtube you know people talking about it a lot of people who are really big into hollywood films even hollywood actors they they don't ever seem to understand what malik is up to and they they watch these films as if they're watching like you know david lynch Eraserhead, or something and they're like it's just this movie by the way he likes other malik he didn't get this which i thought was really telling yeah that is pretty telling um but they think that it's so pretentious as to be the reason why it's so pretentious is that it's it's indecipherable and I, i i certainly there are elements of this like the dinosaur scene, which leave you wondering, but I don't find this film or the other Malick films I've seen to be that indecipherable. They're not that mysterious They're In a way, it seems like Malick's genius is being able to smuggle these very beautiful, but ultimately pretty like on the sleeve Christian Catholic movies he's able to smuggle these into Hollywood and get these big name actors to come and sign up for stuff. They're acting out stuff that they ultimately despise or don't, don't understand that the very, you know, to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I just think there's something really funny about that, that as a Catholic, <laughs> you can sit down and watch this film and go beautiful. I understand exactly what Malik is up to. Like you get mm-hmm. it because He's speaking a, a, a Catholic language to you. But yeah, it's like when you watch people go around the Met or some museum who have exactly. no appreciation of Christian exactly. iconography, try to reflect on like, oh, yeah, he's holding that pomegranate. That's because this is, you know, like uh, Persephone and whatever. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. People. Uh, but, yeah, I think you're right. The only things you need to know in order to understand what's going on with this movie are Genesis, Job and Revelation. And if you have those three things, you've got this. But today, people are so culturally, biblically illiterate and don't appreciate that they need to know those things in order to be able to interact with anything made more than, you know, five minutes ago. Um, 
that they completely missed this. I was listening to a podcast about this earlier today, and there was this agnostic Jewish girl who was trying to figure out, like, but why Sean Penn? Like, he just doesn't seem like that good a person. Why is he the chosen one who's at the center <laughs> of this larger story that he's the key to creation? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. So, okay, so here's my yeah, so here's my sort of general assessment of the of the the ending, you know, the last 10 minutes or so. The revelation. Yeah, so it seems to me that we see Sean Penn throughout the the movie. And so a lot of the vignettes are memories that Sean Penn has. He's struggling in his adulthood. And at the end, he hears his young self say, follow me. And he he literally follows him. He's in this desert, right? And he's, he's all by himself in this desert. Um, and uh, sorry, my phone is ringing. I don't know if you can hear that. We can edit that out. <laughs> um, so anyways, um, he's in this desert. It's very arid. There's no life there at all. He, he seems lost. He begins to follow his younger self, thinking back through these memories, and he ends up on the beach, right? And the beach is really interesting because at first you're thinking, well, the beach maybe is heaven or something because he's being reunited with his brothers, his parents. But what's interesting is that they're all the ages that they were in his memories. Mm -hmm. And yet he seems to be the one. So there's all these people wandering around. Everyone seems kind of like slightly lost. And you'll notice that a lot of them are the people that you saw in the background throughout the film, maybe all of them are. So <clears throat> I don't know precisely what to make of that, but it seems to me that because he's almost the one that unite, he, he says he greets his parents. He finds his, his um, especially the younger brother who had died reunites them. It seems to be purgative, not that it's purgatory allegorically, but it's a kind of mixing together of his memories, sorting through the, all these discombobulated and broken threads of his memories and putting it all together in a meaningful way. And this is a purgative experience for him. But what's interesting then is that the final scene doesn't end with Sean Penn's character, right? It ends with Jessica Chastain in, to me, what is, I mean, beautiful, but not at all mysterious. There she is. And I, I was so moved by this final scene. The light, which for Malik, right, light is so important. And it seems to me that light is representative of this the omnipresence of God. And there she is with immense brightness. Young women sort of tending to her in a beautiful way seem to me to be angelic. Um, and she says, the final words of the film are, are what something like, um, I give him to you. I give you my son. <laughs> and so she, in that moment, enacts fully the, the way of grace. So the one thing that sort of was holding her back is her love and her struggle for especially her son who has died. This is the one thing that we see her struggling with. But she, she, she beautifully uh, is so loving, is so in love with God and abandons herself so much to God and to recognizing her place in the grand scheme of things, not trying to get God to explain it to her or to justify himself to her. But she abandons her will, gives up her son, and this is the moment in which she's beatified. 
And so it seems to me to be the culmination of the life of grace. Like here it is. It's sainthood. It's, it's, it's beatitude. Yeah, I really like that reading. I mean, to be honest, I've always taken that beach scene as an approximation of heaven rather than mm -hmm. purgatory. And for yeah. that reason, like cinematically, I think it works as well as any depiction of that ever has, but <laughs> yeah. is also the part of the movie that like, if I step back and try to evaluate it is least successful just because in principle it has to be right. Like you're always yeah. going to be infinitely failing to capture something that, um, you know, we literally can't imagine, um, yeah. the attitude, uh, cause it doesn't go into imagery at all. God's, own essence becomes the form of our intellect, which you're not going to be able to fit onto a screen. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's interesting that he chooses to do it the way he does with this kind of flowing together of the end of the world, um, the destruction of earth, whatever, but also this own man's ending and to weave that together with both something that is forward looking. He's gone through this doorway, he's progressing to you know, the afterlife in some form, whatever, and also memory and the way that those things tie together. So there is a certain, a certain transcendence of time going on here as well um, that I don't think there's any like literal thing you can say. I mean, why would, you know, he yeah. show up there and everyone be these other ages, not like 33 and kind of perfect youth or something, but just <laughs> right. the ages of his memory, which of course is the only thing that would translate for us as viewers anyway. They need to be what we'd recognize. But the kind of point of the thing at least seems to be don't worry, this does all make sense. In its cosmic setting, there is an answer to the question you are asking. Um, and so there's great consolation in this without um, any kind of declarative articulation of what that is other than the question that opens the movie, um, which has to be the point. So it seems like the movie is just telling you that question, or at least her kind of theodicy question, looking up to God of why, um, where were you, et cetera, here is the answer. And it's his communication of that as clearly as he can. Yeah, I think the combination of both the beatific and purgative elements of this are what probably makes it work so well, where it's not attempting to be one or the other purely, because like you mentioned, it's something that you really just can't do. And so the 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 combinations or the juxtaposition of both the mother's sort of beatific experience in her sort of self-surrender in that moment works really well with what to me seems like Sean, the, you know, the, the grown up Jack, you know, the adult Jack's character remembering everything that we've seen over the last two hours. And that being a very purgative and almost kind of therapeutic moment where he finally, it seems like he can finally come to terms with his past and his memory because as, lo as long as I'm not forgetting something, you only see him, you see him start off in that very sort of pristine, empty home, right? That's just a sur surgical in its sort of sharp edges and clean lines and everything. And then in the 
in the city and in the building and it's all it's all glass and metal and tile and everything else whereas the whole rest of his whole memory is essentially drenched in greenery right it's all nature it's all outside and forest and grass and everything in the trees and then after the very last time i think that we see his character he's outside on the lawn on the grass in front of the building and he finally smiles. And so there's a sense in which I think that you're right, right? This whole, this whole experience is sort of purgative for him in the sense that he can kind of process this memory because that's essentially, right? What the movie is, is doing, what, you know, what it seems to me like Malik is doing with so many of the jump cuts and the, you know, the faces out of focus and things like that, the way your memory kind of works, right? You don't really remember these long, you know, monologues and crystal clear crystal clear details of things at least that's not not the way that my memory works so i think that there is something to it that's mysterious i'm sure there's something about it that i don't get but there is at least that yeah you know that thing in movies where if you're familiar with a place suddenly you're just completely taken out of it um that scene that you're describing right there josh right at the end the last building he's in front of is a building in Houston. It's called Transco Tower, or at least when I was growing up, it was <laughs> oh, called no. Transco Tower. Like the no, Sears no. Tower, I think it technically has a different name now, but everyone mm. still calls it that. Um, but he's there, and then Malik does a quick cut to this suspension bridge that's like miles long over this beautiful blue water. And I remember the first time I saw it just laughing at that moment when everyone around me has no idea why you would laugh in this moment. But I just thought, oh my gosh, you could drive for an hour in any direction from Transco Tower and not find water. And you could drive for about 15 hours in any direction and not find beautiful blue water. <laughs> so that's uh, oh, yeah. that's funny. Beautiful thing. All right. Um, I want to close because I, I think that we should. Um, yep. I want to close just by asking, first of all, if you have anything that I think that, that we haven't talked about that you really wanted to bring up, and if there is a favorite moment from the movie because I know we talked about how it's kind of hard to pick out scenes and, and things like that with, with how quick everything is. But so if, if there's anything else that you wanted to bring up and if you have a favorite moment. Yeah. Can I do 10 seconds on the awards with this? Yeah. Yeah. So tree of life won the Palm Dor at Cannes that year, right? Robert De Niro was the president. So they don't give out a bunch of awards. They give out a single one and that's the one that got it at the Cannes film festival. And then for the Oscars, this got three nominations, uh, cinematography director and best picture and unfortunately won none of the three. It lost to Hugo for cinematography. And this was the awful Oscar year of the artist. And it lost to the artist for both director and best picture. I've never even seen the artist. You don't need <laughs> so, to. Me neither. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's all I've got other than... Uh, wondering at this point to so the next Terrence Malick project, right? It's supposed to be a movie about Jesus. Uh, and having now talked about the kind of Catholicism, sacramentality of all of this and tree of life. I don't know whether I'm hopeful or terrified of mm. how that project will turn out. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a little terrified. We'll see. I, yeah. it, it seems like Malick does such a good job of, um, yeah. Showing the, spiritual reality underlying everyday things that to then 
move to just an explicitly religious film is a little terrifying. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't agree. know if I have a favorite moment, Josh. I Or maybe underrated moment. That might be more yeah. of my thinking. Yeah. 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 Hmm. I have to think about that for a minute. Um, I don't know. Do you have one, Urban? I'll share, I'll share mine. Cause yeah. I, I remember one of the more interesting, it's when you have the almost back to back scenes of how the different parents wake the children up. I thought mm. was just, was really telling. Like if you're like, okay, well, what's the difference between the characters? If you just show them those 30 seconds of the way that they, they wake them up, it's just, it's so, so relevant to who these characters are and, and what they do, right? The, the mother is just playful and you just, you have her levity the entire film, right? I also, also don't know if I've ever seen people just run and walk down the middle of a street as much as I did in this movie. <laughs> and I noticed there's no sidewalks anywhere either. So maybe that's why, but when you, when the mother wakes them up, it's, it's, it's slow, but it's also playful. Cause she, she wakes them up by like stick, you know, sticking the ice cubes down their shirt and, you know, it's sort of like sitting on the bed and sort of greeting them as they wake up. And then the next scene is just the dad kind of storming in, he bangs the door open, rips the blankets off everyone and just walks out without saying, a, without saying a word. And I just, I just thought that was so funny. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of better scenes and better images and everything else, but I think that's one of the few things that stuck out to me as just both sort of underrated in their importance to who the characters are. And also maybe not even unintentionally funny. Cause I do think there's probably a little bit of intentional humor in that sort of back-to-back juxtaposition, but I, I appreciated that moment. My yeah, favorite I don't know scene is the, the, I was just going to say my favorite scene is the one where the kids are running through the DDT pesticide. Yeah. The truck. Great <laughs> moment. <laughs> um, I thought that was so funny. Yeah. I don't know if this is my favorite moment, but the one that was most devastating to me on rewatch last night was when Brad Pitt's out in the yard with Jack and showing him, you know, you're cutting the grass too close here. He's being hypercritical and really just kind of cruel. Uh-huh. And they're clearly in like a really bad way. And then Jack just turns and wraps his arms around him mm. and is just holding him so close. And you're watching mm. Red Pitt's reaction to that. I'm tearing up right now saying it. Um, but especially that in contrast with the two give your father a kiss scenes that are just mm. painful, painful for the opposite sort of effect. But here's yeah. this child, like this dad is abusing him in this moment, verbally abusing him. And he just wraps his arms around him. Like, please love me. Please. Love yeah. me. Um, and yeah, so that's the moment to me that I think hit me hardest last night. Yeah. Yeah. There's a number of moments like that, but. Oh, all right. This was a lot of fun, but we should probably call it. So I think so. I need to go you. eat dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure. I'm sure the same thing is happening. It's, I'm glad we could do this. With, uh, yeah. I was about to say, I'm glad we could coordinate across whatever it is. Six or Italy, seven. England, and Massachusetts. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's lunchtime here. So, yeah. Very good. <laughs> All right. Well, it's good to see you guys. It's a lot yeah. of fun. Enjoy yeah, the rest of your you. evening. And yeah. You too. Yeah. Thanks for doing this, Josh. Of course. 